Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we are super excited to have you on. I feel like we've had quite a few uh, travel tubers, but I think you're like the most experienced with a person who's gone to like the most number of countries and just had the most number of experiences. Like this is the, you're the one person on the other side of the of the screen who's had the most number of experiences that I've talked to. So that's kind of something for me. Yeah, well, I I kind of created my own travel style and not everyone could stomach what I do. <laughs> not everyone can do what I do. And I, I've really become addicted to it. So I've I've done some wild stuff like exploding hammer festivals and buried myself into in the sand for 24 hours up to my neck, took a watermelon on my shoulder up Kilimanjaro, have eaten some of the most crazy things on this planet. I honestly, I was thinking about it the other day. I don't think there's a person on this planet who has eaten as much funky, weird stuff as me. And um, it's to the point where if you go to like the, you know, the top five weirdest foods in the world list, if you just Google it and you see the top five, I've had all those. And I've realized that there's way worse stuff than that, that people don't know about. (laughs) So I could probably make my own top five. Actually, I did recently, I made a vlog called the world's most cursed foods, because when you, you travel and someone offers you a piece of meat that's filled with bugs, it's rotten. You're like, well, okay. So I guess this list of food we consider gross, like balut, for example, it gets way worse than that. So yeah, I do these crazy things, not just because, oh, look, bro, it's crazy. It's like I've become addicted to the travel style of challenging myself and pushing my boundaries. In my opinion, that's what travel is about. Travel is about pushing your boundaries, getting yourself in situations that make you grow and not recklessly, like don't endanger your life, but it's about, you know, finding these things that kind of like put you out of your comfort zone. And the problem is when you travel for 12 years uh, and you always try to do that, your comfort zone keeps on getting bigger and bigger. So you have to push it a little bit farther, a little bit farther. So so now (laughs) the stuff I'm doing, everything I do honestly challenges me, but I've done a lot. Uh, I've been fortunate to be doing this job for a long time. And so the experiences get a little bit more out there. Harder to find. Not necessarily harder to find. Just they, they instead of like, you know, sleeping overnight in a forest, it becomes like, you know, a week trek with like no food, that that, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Always trying to find this, this edge of, of my comfort zone. So one thing as well, people who know me closely know that I meticulously prepare for these adventures and excursions and trips I do. Some of them could very well be dangerous, but I really take the prep seriously. I take the training seriously. I think about everything that can go wrong, not expecting things to go wrong, but just so I have my bases covered and I truly understand what I'm about to do. And if I don't feel like I can control the situation, I either get out of there or I don't do it at all. So for me, it's it's not about like, again, doing crazy things to be like the jackass movie. It's more like training and preparing accordingly to do some of these things and show people that if you do the things that you think you can't or you do the things that people say you can't, wonderful magic door opens in your life that allows you to go through and accomplish all these things you'd never dream of. So that that's my story. The, the name Fearless and Far comes from the fact that I, my job now is doing the thing that I was the most afraid to do for 25 years of my life. I'm 35 now. For 25 years, I was, well, let's say 28 years, was crap my pants terrified of public speaking. And uh, people never believe me and that they dismiss it because they see me now. But I was so scared of public speaking, man. Uh, like crippling fear of public speaking. And it, through 10 years of, of doing the things that challenged me, including that, I've been able to craft the lifestyle and the travel style. As you said, a dream job. 
because I chose to dive into this thing that I was so scared of. So I always say I'm not fearless. I just really like fighting them. And fearlessness is just a choice you make in a moment. It's not like a, a form of enlightenment that you just have to achieve fearlessness. It's not really like that. It's it's a choice. So for me, that's what I advocate. And that's what I like to demonstrate as well. Well, that's, for, for opening monologue, I'm going to rate that in the top 10 of anything. I think that was, that was crazy. I feel like super inspired just from that. Yeah, man, I, I felt like you really sort of covered your uh, travel philosophy quite well there. It's Travel is not about like the sites or the people for you. It's about, you know, putting yourself just out of your comfort zone, see if you can figure out your way around an adventure, right? Yeah, definitely. You have to prepare for some of these things. Like if you're scared of water, don't just go jump in the ocean, like take swimming lessons, you know, go with an expert, like all of these things. I mean, people always try to undermine my philosophy saying like, oh, well, how, how can you tell what's, what's dangerous and what's not, how, which fears you should fight, which fears you shouldn't. And for the longest time, I used to be like, give this really thought out reply. But now I'm just like, dude, like, you know, like, you know, deep down, which fears in your life are dangerous. Like if you're scared of heights, you know, you probably shouldn't dangle your feet off a bridge, but you know, there's ways you could work around that with professional care or instruction. Like everyone knows deep down. And if you don't know what's actual dangerous or not, I mean, a couple of quick Google searches or, or something can figure that out for you, but, uh, or you maybe have no common sense, but at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty easy for people to figure out which fears they can fight. Just again, mustering up the courage to be able to do so is uh, the barrier we all face. And for most of us, including myself, it was because I didn't just one day wake up and decide that I want to do it. I had to get uh, an uppercut right to the chin by life with um, just, you know, <laughs> life stuff. I, life just was, was playing rough. Everyone's life at some points in their life, they'll, they'll encounter these things that just completely derail them. But you have to have like an opportunistic mindset. You have to you know, be on your back foot, kind of wobbly, and then decide what can I do from here? Not like, oh, woe is me. This is so shitty. It's what can I do from here? That attitude in life, I think is one of the most valuable. And if I'm a natural at one thing, for whatever reason, I've always been able to focus on the positive when life just seems like it's playing dirty. And that attitude is what gets you out of these dark places, allows you to change your life drastically because most of us aren't going to change the habits in our lives if we're just, you know, everything's okay. It could be a relationship. It could be a job. If things are like, ah, it's okay. Someone much smarter than me once said, people won't change until the pain of staying is greater than the pain of change. I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but that's very true. If things are like four out of 10, three out of 10, and you're like, eh, you're not going to change anything, but things have to drop down to zero. And then you'll be like, I can't do this anymore. And then you break. And then it's up to you to reform yourself better. And there's always an opportunity to reform yourself better. But it's it's not very human to just one day wake up and read a motivational quote or watch a YouTube video that says, change your life today, and then go do that. That's not how our brains work. We have to hit a point of desperation, and then everything can change. And that's that's kind of a bit of my story and uh, how I, I feel about my travel and also about the world and about fear. Mad, mad, mad. I think the one thing that really sort of struck me there is that you need desperation to sort of change your life. And do you think that I feel like anybody who's in a nine to five, maybe in like in that one to 10 scale of, you know, uh, life satisfaction, they are in that, at that five scale, most people across the world. Uh, do you think that maybe like a good way to sort of uh, get to that zero part of that scale is just to give up your job and, and I don't know, maybe live on the streets for a while just to see like, hey, this is what life on the other side is like. 
Well, you don't need desperation, but it definitely helps things change more quickly. <laughs> Getting to a point of just having the change is probably the fastest way to change. If you're like, oh, I kind of like to change my life. Yeah, it's not going to happen. You have to kind of have to hit that, that point where it has to happen or else you feel like you're going to die or of stress or whatever it is. And I used to judge people for having nine to fives, especially judging people having nine to fives and like, you know, traveling to Cancun and all this kind of stuff. I had a friend once who said, because he was asking me about tips to tips to go to Mexico. And I've spent three years living in Mexico City. And he's like, I just want to go to a resort in Cancun and chill with the family. He had like a kid and, and a wife. I was like, come on, bro, just no plan like a backpacker trip and you can stay in Airbnbs and all these cities. And he's like, listen, I just want to go relax for a week and not have to worry about cooking or planning or, you know, what what to do when I just want to relax. That's going to make me happy. And, and I had always bugged him about kind of traveling more. He said he was happy. He said he was happy with his job, that he was it was good. Um, he had a beautiful wife and a beautiful kid and he was happy. For me, like doing that when I was 25 wouldn't have made me happy at all. That's why I'm doing this job now. But I realized like, who am I to judge other people and who am I to tell other people to change their life based on my standard of happiness? It's a really, really arrogant way to live your life. And I have the key to my happiness and and maybe a handful of other people in the world, maybe millions of people, I don't know. But I know I don't, I don't have the key or nor is this lifestyle a key or traveling a key to everyone's happiness. I think the most important thing as travel influencers we can do is just be open with how we got to where we are, give tools, give motivation, but ultimately everyone has to make their own decision. And if you're in a nine to five and you're unhappy and you feel unfulfilled, then consider something a bit different. But if you're feeling pretty good, maybe you just need like a small course change. Maybe you just have to, you know, get a promotion or just change it a little bit. There's no need to quit everything. And for, for me, I didn't one day, I don't, my story was never, I got sick of the nine to five and just said, F you, I quit um, and ran away and started this. Some people could do that, but I think for the most of us, it's a, it was a slow transition. I had, I had pretty good experiences in the nine to five. I knew it didn't fit, but there wasn't any like particular moment of just, again, desperation there. The desperation came in with other stuff like um, breakups and family deaths and car crashes and stuff like that. So for me, it was a slow transition. I had a nine to five job and in, in the evenings I would work at uh, my, my craft, which is the video editing and the talking on camera and making, I was making videos for travel competitions at that point. And then eventually I was able to do that work at my nine to five job. And so they let me do some video work there. And then it's, it was a slow transition of developing this skill set and also developing a portfolio in video and photography to then get some side gigs on the weekends. And then eventually it flipped over. And I still recommend that being the best way. I was lucky to have that transitional period. Sometimes you just got to quit. You know what I mean? And there was a point where I did have to quit because you can't just do both. And at some point you do have to make that leap. You have to trust yourself and trust your craft enough to be able to make that leap. Tim Ferriss talks about this a lot. And I don't know if it was originally from stoicism, but exactly but it's called fear setting. And fear setting is a bit what I told before when I was planning these adventures where it's like thinking about the worst case scenario planning for the worst case scenario, but then not expecting it, just be, you know, being ready, but not assuming, not, oh my God, it's all going to fall to pieces. No, just be like, okay, if everything goes wrong, God forbid, 
what would happen? And in that case, when you're transitioning from a nine to five and into your life, like some of us are fortunate to be, to be able to go back to our parents' basement. You know, it's not the most glamorous thing, but the thing is it, like the worst case scenario for many of us is going back to our parents' house, staying in the guest room or in the, on the couch for a month or two, and then getting our feet back underneath us. You have to be able to trust yourself. You have to be able to know that no matter what, you're going to make it work. And that's the attitude that I told you before when life all comes crashing down and you're in that moment of desperation. You have to decide, I'm going to make this work. And the people who decide that, no matter what it is, end up making it work. We don't really know what it is yet. Maybe you don't know what it is, but you all, we all know the things we can do to make ourselves better or go towards this thing we think we, we want, we love, this business, this idea, this trip, whatever it is. You know, Whether it be saving a dollar in the bank every day, whether it be going to the gym for an hour every day, they're the things we know we can do to, to get us towards there. And for me, I was lucky to have a spot I could go back to in my parents' basement. And when I went to Toronto, I got, was bankrupt there. My parents aren't from there. They're from the East Coast. So I had like the shittiest apartment in Toronto, a fifth of, of a normal apartment price. I lived with cockroaches and an old man who was like 70. We, we shared a bathtub together because there was no shower. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a horrible place, but it allowed me to use that money to spend on myself, to buy a new camera, to get computer software, to be able to work and get the project. So living in like literally the worst apartment in Toronto with an old man to share a bath with when I was like 23 or 24, 25 or something allowed me to now do this. And so people don't know that version of me picking the cockroaches out of the sink every night, but that's what I was. And then, then people would be like, Oh my God, how can you live? People said that like, Oh my God, how can you live here? How can you live there? And I was embarrassed too, but look where I'm now. Like I'm sitting in Turkey. I have two TV jobs, a podcast, a successful YouTube channel, and I'm get to travel all year long. Even during a pandemic, I haven't stopped. I, I stopped traveling for like two months, and um, it's because I made those sacrifices. And I wasn't scared about living in my parents' basement. And I wasn't scared about making these sacrifices because I knew I could make it work. Again, I don't know how, but just that confidence in being able to make it work. And it has always changed, but knowing that that was going to happen, yeah. Sweet, sweet, sweet. I think you've really given us a sort of origin story uh, in bits and pieces in that, uh, uh, what you just said. I think fear setting is something that is very useful, at least from what I've heard uh, from other people who've used it as well. Other YouTubers who started and, you know, gone full-time have also said that it was one of the things that allowed them to, you know, go after what they really wanted, just like what you said. Yeah, you can't exactly judge people who don't want to do the travel experience, right? Like um, different sort of experiences, uh, like different neurons in all of us. So, you know, to each his own in that way. But for those who do want to do it, uh, I think fear setting is a very useful tool in the arsenal that way. You said that 10 years ago was when you had sort of uh, started stepping like one foot into another, into the whole uh, YouTuber slash travel uh, vlogger lifestyle, right? So... Who were your inspirations at the time, like uh, in the creator space? Were there anybody in the creator space at the time or was it just sort of like an Anthony Bourdain or uh, other uh, traveling living type uh, inspirations? Yeah, I didn't really pay attention to Anthony Bourdain's work just until the year he died, basically. I knew, obviously knew who he was. I'd seen programs and stuff, but never really followed his work that closely. And the year he died, that guy was... Um, getting into cooking more and I was getting into jujitsu and I came across this article about how Anthony Bourdain of course was a chef but also did jujitsu and I started to watch his footage more and I was like you know what like um this guy's really 
Cool. The main thing I liked about him, and I think everyone liked about him, was his honesty, his transparency, his uh, his dark past, and, and unshameful speeches about it, which I think is a huge parallel to travel, because travel is all about honesty and uncovering the truth and transparency. And if you're a traveler at heart, you value those things so, so much. And he was the embodiment of that, right? Then he died <laughs> in such a weird, strange way. And for me, it, it, it affected me more than I thought it would. Since then, it's been a big influence on my life. Because again, I, again I, with this, I don't watch too much TV. I never really have. I don't like watching, especially other travel creators very much. I really like being myself. And I don't want to get influenced by anybody else. And my travel style is super unique. And there wasn't anybody else really doing the kind of stuff that I like to do, like going to cemeteries and abandoned buildings and strange, crazy festivals. I always like to be the first one to find and document a place and try to do so as beautifully as I could. That being said, when I first got started, there was definitely some people I, I gleaned a lot of information from. So the main ones were Tim Ferriss because he had just released Four Hour Workweek. That was a manual that I think millions of people used to be like, oh, actually, you know what? If I wanted to travel and work, this is how we do it. Like there was a million examples in there. But not just about that. There was examples to build confidence. There, It was just the manual I needed as a guy at that time. And I think for everybody, that's the same story. I also read Chris Guibault's book, The Art of Nonconformity, which was a big help. And I think Gary V's book, Crush It. <laughs> I think that was like my starter pack to this life. Maybe Chris Guibault's book wasn't as popular, but of course, Crush It and the uh, four-hour work week were two massive books in that space. But again, for a lot of us, it was like, oh my God, this is how you do it, right? It's exactly how you do it. And then I went on to listen to a lot of Tim Ferriss's podcasts. And now I get influenced a lot by Lewis Howes and other people. Like He has a podcast called The School of Greatness and all of these things. And for me, it was so important. I came from a small town in Canada. No one did what I did. And it's really easy if you come from a small town and no one, for example, is traveling and starting businesses. If you try to do that, people will start to crap on you, man. Like my family was really supportive, but like I had friends and people who uh, shot me down. And also when you start making things on YouTube or wherever, I guess I assume my best friends would be like liking and commenting all the time, but that's not really how it works. And I don't blame them for that. I'm not jaded at all. Everyone's busy with their own lives. But when you start, no one really listens. <laughs> and so it's easy, especially if, if no one seems to care online. And all of your friends are like, why are you doing that stupid thing? Or like just completely dismissive, not interacting. Maybe they're embarrassed because everyone sucks in the beginning, right? If you suck, no one's going to be like, oh, awesome. Maybe some people will, but most will be like, oh, okay. Mike's doing that weird talk and stuff on camera again <laughs> and just swipe. It's discouraging in the beginning, but you still have to surround yourself with people who inspire you, people who will help you succeed. And if, again, if you're in Toronto or another massive city in the world, you can find those people. But if you're from a small town, you can't. So you have to create your circle based on, in my case, digital sources. So again, these books and these podcasts, these people that I had just mentioned came together unknowingly, <laughs> but they were like my secret circle. And with all that, I was able to rise back up. And I probably have a new kind of like business mentor 
every couple of years now. Like for example, now Brendan Bouchard has, has been very influential in my life, building courses, sales funnels, motivation, energy, passion, direction, purpose, all these things. One thing though that I have to watch sometimes is you get a little bit too drunk <laughs> off inspirational content sometimes where you feel like you need it. You're doing a lot of consuming, but you're not doing a lot of doing. And that's a, a line that I always have to make sure I'm not crossing. Gary V actually is, is really, really funny with this because he tells people to like to stop, to stop listening and just go do the work because at the end of the day, it's so easy to just keep on digesting this content that's inspirational. Like, oh, you know, achieve your dreams, go do the thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you don't because you're too busy watching more videos. You got to do it. You got to do it, do it, do it, do it. That's the big secret. How did you become a travel videographer? What, what are your top secrets? You just do it. You just take, you just take this thing. You just do it. There's no more questions. You don't need you don't need a camera. You just have to you just do it with whatever you got. That's that's the thing. Do it for a long time. It's it's funny that uh, this is the question that just people don't want to hear the answer to. But the people who have the fire to just do it are the people who are successful. The people who, you know, collect the lenses and and read the books and get obsessed with the information and the learning. They get it, but they don't do it. The people who just do it are the ones who succeed. There's a really good point in the middle where you're consuming content that's relevant, you're gaining information, learning skills, but that can only ever be 30, 40%. No, if, you're, if it's even 40%, it's just too much. 30% of that should be digesting and learning. And then 70 should be just doing because learning by doing is, is what humans do best. And that confidence to just do that and make mistakes is something we all, we all lack. That's actually why I, I fell in love with the sport of jujitsu that I mentioned. As adults, we just hate failing. We don't like it. As kids, we fall down, we trip, we learn things, and it's all part of being a kid. But as we grow up, we just hate failing. We hate being bad at things. We hate we hate the feeling of it. It, it hurts our ego. It makes our friends and family make fun of us. But it's the most important thing that you have to get rid of. If you're not scared to fail, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff, right? But this sport of jujitsu is the one where there's no beginner's luck and you go and you lose. The first hundred times you go, it's you just get the, the crap beat out of you basically. But it teaches you that, that trying and failing is okay. And anything I can do in my life that teaches me that trying and failing is okay, I will gobble that up because it's a lesson that that all adults need to have. And it goes away very quickly if you don't practice that skill. Sweet, sweet, sweet. I think... Uh... Anybody listening would have taken a lot of points there because I think uh, starting with all of your sort of uh, inspirations to start off this lifestyle and then coming to the whole sort of like don't consume anymore. You need to sort of create for any of your consumption to make sense is also an important point there, I feel. And uh, yeah, and about the failure bit, I feel like, again, that sort of ties in with your uh, previous point where you said that, you know, we need to sort of uh, really be desperate to make a change in our lives just immediately sort of like the first image that came to my head is that Michael Douglas movie, The Game, where random secret organization just goes around, uh, you know, just wrecking havoc into a random person's life. And I think that is something that should happen for like a lot of people to sort of like really get people to like, uh, you know, fulfill their potential. Run me through a day in the life of, uh, you know, when, when you have one of your shoots, like uh, what does it look like? Like, do you plan out everything in advance? You said that you have... Uh, quite a bit of a planner's mindset uh, but you sort of plan out like every shot you're going to take like you scope out your locations how does it go like just in the beginning i didn't script at all i just show up someplace and talk vlog hey hey it's our first day on the trek look at this it's a cute little puppy oh there's a mountain over there all right we're gonna walk for five days let's go music that's how it started then it turned into more scripted where I would sit down and I would write out information. I'd, I'd have an idea of what I wanted to say. 
which was fine. But again, with travel, you can't ever really know how it's going to be. There has to be an element of spontaneity in there, an element of flexibility, because at the end of the day, things can always change. So now I think I've hit a point where I, I really feel like I've been able to nail it. So this is how, how it works for me. I have a giant map in Google My Maps. Google My Maps is different than Google Maps. So Google Maps, we are all, all familiar with, but Google My Maps is like, you just type it into Google and it goes like the side branch of Google Maps where you can create these, your own maps of, of the world of places and you can save pins and you can put images and everything like that. So I have this giant map of the world that I've pinned everything cool that I've come across in 10 years. So basically if, if there's a image on Instagram of an abandoned cathedral in Romania, I'll be like, oh damn, what's that? And I'll save it. And then I'll usually reverse image search it in Google. So you can actually upload the file to Google. It'll show you all the other sources and places that image has been uploaded before. And then you can try to like treasure hunt and track a little bit, use your little detective fingers to figure out where that place is exactly. And then once I figure it out, it'll go into a map. So that's with festivals, with everything. That's how it works. Foods as well. So then eventually I'll look at that map and I'll say, wow, there's like four or five of these really interesting pins in Tanzania. And then I'll consider planning a trip to Tanzania. Then depending on how sophisticated I want to make the trip, sometimes I'll hire somebody who is Tanzanian in this example, who lives in that country to then start contacting places. Here's a good example. I was supposed to go to India last year for my first time. I've never been. And so there was a lot of really cool festivals and foods and locations. And so I realized this and I was planning a trip. And so I, I hired um, an Indian who, I uh, forget where they were based, but they helped me contact some of these temples and restaurants and things and to speak in the native language and make the connections to be able to organize. Because a lot of these things that I want to do are very kind of off, off the path and they're not going to have an English speaking person there. I usually hire someone and I hire them on a website called Upwork or Fiverr or something like that. And so I have this person helping me plan before I go. When I arrive for all of these places, all of these videos, I ha already have a title and a thumbnail planned out in my head. That That is actually what I take most seriously now because that is literally the most important thing on YouTube that no one really thinks about. The people who think about thumbnail and title win the game. And if it's, it makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about it because it's like if you go to a grocery store and you want to buy a candy bar and you're like, ah, I want to try something new. You're going to buy the best packaging is what you're going to do. Maybe you'll take a look at the ingredients, but at the end of the day, whatever candy bar has the nicest name and the nicest color scheme that's, that appeals to you or a logo or Jaguar eating a snake or whatever you like, you'll buy that candy bar. And that's exactly how the entire world works. Marketing is the most important thing. Clickbait, these things do work, but it's all about you being able to craft the first encounter for, for the viewer and the impression is what it's called. So if you don't have a good title and thumbnail, no one's going to click. It could be like the best video. It could be like a cinematic masterpiece that changes people's lives. But same thing, if you go into the grocery store, it's the best chocolate bar and it's just like a brown wrapper with black writing and it, you're not going to buy it because you're like, well, this, you just don't even look at it. So that is such an important thing. And then from there, you almost have to craft your video around that because you don't want to make clickbait. You do want to make things. You, want, you do want to have a good title, but you want the title to actually reflect what's in the content. And also the thumbnail too. So if you want to make a video about like, you know, surfing on a giant surfboard, what would you expect that thumbnail to be? I mean, we can probably picture it in our head right now. 
So you have to fulfill that fantasy or you have to generate some curiosity with that as well. So if it's just like some dude sitting on the beach and it's like riding the world's biggest surfboard, you're not going to click on it because already it looks like the, it's not going to fit the bill. It already looks like it's clickbait, right? But if you can provide a thumbnail that looks like it's an, a still image from the video itself and it's really fascinating, man. Like, for example, I made one... Uh, uh, hunting with the Hadzabe tribe uh, of hunter-gatherers. And I specifically took time out of my day, 10 minutes, 15 minutes with these guys, to get them to hold up all the animals we caught for specifically the thumbnail. Because I knew I had to have a very clear, high-quality photo that didn't look too manipulated and photoshopped, especially for travel content, that reflected the title that I wanted. And it, it, it worked. The video did really well. It's got like a half a million views in like a week and a half. Uh, but that stuff's really, really important. So crafting that thumbnail and title and then being able to make sure you deliver on the content. Uh, a lot of content creators that are successful now say they don't make videos. They make thumbnails and titles. And then they make the video about the thumbnail and title, which is a, an interesting way to think about it. But it's putting the most important thing first. So I put a ton of planning into those two things, making sure I have a, a, a thumbnail and title taken care of before I arrive, especially the thumbnail, the title you can figure out later. But the thumbnail, the problem is if you don't think about it specifically beforehand, you end up just like Frankensteining something together in Photoshop that, or you're just using a screenshot that's blurry or desaturated or something. You want to have that be like the, the, big, the most important thing. So a lot of the structure I do now for my content isn't so much scripting exactly what I want to say. Uh, I do have bullet points, but I mostly lay out the structure so I don't like doing a lot of ad placements, ad integration into my content. I don't like ads. YouTube is already force feeding people so many ads on the platform. And I don't want to add like a 90 second Skillshare NordVPN thing in the middle. So what I do as I use that opportunity to structure some kind of self-promotion. So whether it be promoting my new Fearless and Far dragon pennant or whether it be promoting the podcast or whether it be promoting my youtube or patreon so you're in the middle of a video it cuts for a second you're like all right guys we're here but while you're here make sure to check out this new product this new thing you know and trying to make that kind of exciting in the middle of it itself so you have this kind of like ad about yourself ad about another platform a service something to promote your other whatever it is that that's been working really well for me for Patreon, for uh, the new podcast, all of these things. Cause it's, it's like integrated, but you're also promoting your other, your other platforms. And the best thing to do as a, as a content creator on no matter what platform you're on is to be able to diversify into a newsletter or into um, whatever else uh, being able to have like hook videos, like my top five advanced travel tips is a hook video I made. So I, I structure the video in a way I can insert this. Hey guys, if you like this trip, make sure to check out my top five travel tips of all time. All the top things I've learned that I just put your email in the link in the description. And then that goes, they go to my, my website. They give me their email. I give them this really high value video. And then I get their email for my, for my newsletter. Like these, these little kind of like integrated ads for your own, your own purposes. I plan that a lot. And I plan the content a lot. I don't really plan too much what I say there anymore. I do have bullet points and things. But honestly, now what I've been doing is experiencing it as, as me, myself, not worrying too much about like, oh, the cathedral was built in 1584. doesn't matter. People don't really necessarily need information on YouTube. If they want to learn anything about anything, there's going to be a more informative Wikipedia page or something, right? So I do cover some of that stuff in voiceover after. I don't worry too much about being like the authority with all the information on location. I worry about being the most honest, compelling, 
fun host I can, trying to really ingrain myself into the culture, into the people or whatever I'm doing, experience everything. And then later I'll handle a lot of the the bits and pieces and, you know, the connective tissue with voiceover after. That's that's how I'm doing my videos now. Also, I, I always plan to have something in the beginning that is reinforces the thumbnail and title. So you click on it with an expectation. The first 20 seconds of, of those videos is what is exactly what you clicked on. So again, for the hunting, you click on it and it wasn't me two days before being like, all right, guys, I'm getting ready to go hunting soon. We're going to buy some supplies. No, because people want to see what they want to see, not two days beforehand. Like what? I don't understand why people do that. So for me, I always throw people in the action right in the beginning, like a cold open. So you're in the thick of it. I don't show the peak. I don't show like the climax, but I show just about there. And then we cut off and we, we rewind a little bit. And I always plan something like that. So when I'm on location, I'm thinking, how can I film something that I can put in the beginning? How can I build that cold open sequence to then can get people to continue watching and also reinforce that what they clicked on is actually what they're going to get? Right, right, right. I think that a lot of that was uh, YouTube best practices, right? And I think you're like really on top of your game in that way. I feel like you've really given it that that importance, you know? So you mentioned earlier that you think a lot about uh, how the sort of structure goes from YouTube to getting them on email. And then from email, what, what exactly do you do with them, like with your audience? Yeah, so this is an, a new goal of mine because I didn't really think about it too much until just uh, about a year and a half ago. But I've realized it's super important, of course, especially the email address because who knows what happens to the platforms. At any point, right. you could be demonetized or deplatformed or the, this whole site could go down or just a new one pop up and then one died, right? So having that email and, and building this independent audience audience independent of any social network is really important. Yeah. Once I get the email, it goes into the newsletter and the newsletter goes out once a month, soon to be twice a month. And there I share the top five things I come across this month that it, like that interests me. It could be places, it could be products, just like five cool things that I think everyone should know about. And I also have a course that I built last year as well. So eventually they, they have some th- funnels in place. So if you click on one of these hooks, for example, there's um, like five keys to confidence, for example. Then you get put in this funnel where you get uh, all these like free videos. Me talking about fear, me talking about different things. And then eventually you get offered the, this, this war on fear course. So that's one way to do it. But basically it's being able to have these people and giving them more value, more value, more value with like, I have a travel playlist. I have all kinds of little bits and pieces I like to share with people. And the, the point is to, to keep this contact off the social platforms a little bit and, and also have a spot where I can promote things that pop up or promote other people or, or whatever it is. Sweet, sweet, sweet. So you use uh, YouTube as a discovery platform and then sort of like use it as a funnel to into your other businesses in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And right. I think that's really important as, as a, someone who has an online brand. As a lot of us, get, we get very caught up in the creative side of it, which is mm-hmm. good, really good. The most important thing is to make things. But at a certain point, you have to start thinking about growing as an online brand. And and these are the things, having an email list, having, you know, content, like whether it be a PDF worksheet or something to be able to give value to people. It gets fun. It gets complicated, but it's definitely a deep rabbit hole. You can can get lost in for a long time. Right, right. And are there any resources that you can recommend somebody listening should uh, check out for uh, understanding the best practices of this? Again, I didn't think about it too much for a long time. I, I was mostly focused on making making stuff. Again, that's really important. Uh, but how I started to think about it differently is this guy, Brendan Bouchard, that, that I was mentioning, where there was a, like, it was an, an Instagram ad that popped up and it's like, hey, 
YouTuber or Instagram or take my $1 influencer course and learn all about funnels and stuff. And it looked pretty cool. Like it, the course looked like it was well produced and it was a dollar. So, I mean, it's always like a dollar. Then they subscribe you into like the $50 a month thing. And so that was how it works. But it was like nine videos or 12 videos and it was a dollar and I bought it for a dollar and then watched them and they were really good. And he, he laid out like the reason why you had to have these systems in place, the importance of selling and funnels, talked about like building influence, how to build influence, how to how to be more persuasive, also how to find your purpose. And I found more of his content and been really kind of um, enamored by everything he's done and, and heavily influenced by the work he's done. So for me, it was, it was getting involved with him. Uh, he's a big proponent of a website called Kajabi, which does everything. It does um, email, it does websites, it does courses, all, all this kind of stuff, funnels, all, all this. And so through all that, I was able to kind of craft this next level of Fearless and Far, which has been really exciting and, and really worth it, in my opinion. It feels good to have your own thing going, you know what I mean? <laughs> sweet, sweet, sweet. Like, I think having that uh, platform independent audience and then figuring out how to make a business out of it is the way to go. And obviously the listeners of Creative Nation are not there yet, but I think eventually if they sort of invest their time and their energy into it, they will get there someday. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I think it's important to know that. Now getting back to the craft, right? I know this is something that's uh, deeply important to you, but you weren't always the confident extrovert that you are right now, right? Uh, there was a time when you were, I think at 15 is what you said, when you were a little bit more nervous, when you're a little bit more shy, when you you weren't the sort of like kid at the back of the class saying, you know, whatever you wanted to. How exactly does one go from there to being, having sort of like the YouTube persona that you have right now? Like, what is the process and how does somebody who's shy and sort of uh, still an introvert go from point A to point B? Yeah, well, uh, that, that was me until I was 25, man. Like, uh, oh, damn. Long story short, I had a trauma when I was in like grade three or grade four, where a teacher brought me to the front of the class and like ridiculed me, basically. It's because I went to school sad that day because I had a pet that died. And so she decided to bring me up in front of the class and ask me why I was sad. <laughs> and then basically like make fun of me because there's no reason to be sad. Anyway, but that was my introduction to public speaking. And when you're <laughs> young, you, you keep that stuff sticks with you, right? Like, again, I wasn't a class clown. That was my first time ever being like the focus of the class. I was always the quiet kid. And so then that happened and it left us a, a big dent, a big scar in me for, for a lot of my life. So the journey to from phobic to fearless, let's guess. Again, it wasn't just one morning waking up and deciding I was going to fight my deepest fears. No one, no one really does that. It was by life kind of beating me around, like I said, and then having to do something crazy, doing something different. But I guess what I try to preach now a lot is like these things we're so scared of are almost like the, the north point of the compass. Like we were so afraid of being afraid, especially that if we dive into these things, these dark corners of our lives and shed light in there, it's like the monster under the bed when we're a kid. It is literally the same thing because when we're a kid, we're, it's almost okay to be afraid. And we all, you know, we, we think there's a monster in the closet or under our bed and mom and dad come in, open, turn on the lights, open the door or the closet or lift the sheets underneath the bed and there's nothing there. It's exactly the same thing with adult fears, but they just change shape, right? It's not, we're not scared of a, a wolf under the bed, a, a, a werewolf. We're, we're, we're scared of, in, we're scared of rejection. We're scared of all these adult things that, that like Most money. Rejection. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a million things we're afraid of now, but it's all exactly the same thing. It's like, it's because we don't know enough. No one's opening the curtain for us. And as adults, no one does that. 
as kids, our parents can come in and, and dismantle these fears. As adults, no one does that. We have to open the covers, open the door ourselves. And always what happens, this thing you're so scared of, whether it be talking to girls or, or money or the center of attention, you find yourself there and you realize it's, it's scary, but it's all a bunch of fluff. That's just a monster that goes away as soon as you shed light on this place. And for me, that was public speaking. Like I was going, like I said, I was going through some tough times and my decision was like, I was just so sick of being scared, man. I was so sick of being scared of being in the spotlight. I was a bit of a faker. Like I kind of found myself making these videos because I was almost bullied into it. So I, I ended up getting quite sick and um, I was on a, a couch for months and months and months. And I was just getting better. I had been traveling a bit before that, but a friend sent me a link to a video and he's like, Hey man, you should enter this travel video competition. You have to make a video. You talk on camera, you introduce yourself and say why, why you love to travel. And I was like, ah, no, I don't do that kind of stuff. Like it's not me is what I said. It's not me. Here I am now. It's very much me apparently, <laughs> but uh, I just missed it. And then he said, probably the, the best thing anybody could say is like, well, what are you going to do? Sit on a couch for a few more months? Sick. And I was in this crazy spot of like desperation where I just felt so restless and so fed up. And, and I just was like, fine, I'll try. And so I turned on a camera in my room and I tried to say my name and I messed it up. I turned all red in my room, like embarrassed by myself. And I tried again and, and like said my street wrong and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. But I ended up just doing it like 50 times. And then one of them was pretty good. And I was like, fine. And so I did the next scene about like why I like to travel. And again, like 25 takes, you know, I'm trying to like hold a map and like just getting the name and just not being able to do it. Just so, so like basic motor skills, basic communication just does not come across. But again, you do it 25 times, use the best take, you move on. And that was my strategy forever, man. And people called me a natural. I thought it was the funniest thing ever because they didn't know I was just beating at this craft with a blunt bat with like no precision, just blundering through like a, some kind of like ogre, hobbling myself along, trying to put these pieces together. And at the end, they were okay. After I did that for a couple of years, I, I became a little bit more comfortable talking in the room by myself, but it didn't solve my public speaking problem at all. I saw a little bit of success with this travel video thing. And I was just realized like talking is obviously one of the most important things we all do all of the time. We're talking now. We, we're, we're communication machines. Everything we do is about communication. Our love lives, our careers, our family lives, all our relationships, everything is communication. But we never are taught how to communicate. We're never given a lesson. There's nothing. So we fall into these bad patterns. We don't even know what we say. We don't like the sound of our voice. Like these, all these things. We use ums and ahs and likes and ands and whatever else. I, well, I didn't know if I could ever become what I wanted to be. I didn't even really know what I wanted to be. I just knew that the best path for me was to do this thing that I was afraid of, that communication was so important and that I had to get better if I wanted to do anything in life. I wasn't happy. I didn't feel like I found my place in life. I felt like I was paralyzed by fear and paralyzed by my lack of being able to communicate. I felt like I had this dirty secret. Like here's this guy who's okay at speaking on camera, but he's not okay because he has to do 47 takes just to say his name, right? I just felt like I was a phony and I looked up public speaking classes in my hometown. There's one called Toastmasters and I signed up and then I, the night came to go and I didn't go. <laughs> I convinced myself otherwise. And so I missed my chance. Several months later, I felt so shitty about myself. I just felt even more embarrassed that I had planned it and didn't go. So it came around again and I booked it again 
and I drove to the parking lot the night that I was there and I sat in the parking lot two, three minutes went by past the time to go in. And then I was thinking about driving away, like rationalizing, Oh, you know, it's, I don't need to do this. And Oh, actually, you know what? I, I, it's a six week course and I might have to leave in five weeks. And then someone knocks on my door and they're, and they're like, uh, are you here for the class? And I was like, are you Mike? Yes. Well, we're starting. And I, then I was in, <laughs> I was in. And so maybe it was an angel because I never saw that person again, but <laughs> they weren't in the class. I don't know who they were, but I went inside and the thing, I didn't know this. And if I would have known this, I would probably have not even gone at all. Uh, but you have to present on your first night there. So you go in and meet everybody. There's 10 people there. Everyone's like much better at speaking than I was, of course, because I was the most terrified guy to speak. And um, at the end, they're like, okay, well, all new students must give a presentation. And I was like, oh, oh no, oh no. And it's like, well, Mike, you're the new student today. So go for it. And I had to go up with no notes, no preparation, nothing. And I had to talk about myself, my name, God forbid, my, where I'm from. And I, I just black, I think I blacked out. Like, I don't remember doing it. I remember I did it, but I don't remember what I said. <laughs> and then at, also during the entire time, someone was clicking. Like they had this little like uh, clicker thing to count. And they'd keep on clicking it over, over, over while I was speaking. And then at the end, everybody like gave a standing ovation. Not because it was good. Not because it was good. It wasn't good. They gave a standing ovation because it was my first time. They could tell I was bone-shakingly nervous, but I did it. And I made it through the, the minute or something that it was. And they wanted to give me positive reinforcement. And it like rewired my brain a little bit. So every other time I'd done a presentation, I always like rushed off. I never got a standing ovation before. No one ever told me good job. It was always kind of like, okay, next person or whatever. Cause I always did probably like a C plus job, but they gave me a standing ovation because that's what you do. Not cause it was good. And it felt kind of nice. And then that photo of the guy with the clicker was actually counting every time I said, um, and ah, and I think I said, um, 15 times in one minute or something. But that changed how I thought about it. So I went back and I went back and I went back. It got a little bit easier. But what, what mostly changed was my attitude towards it. And I realized that I decide whether it's a success or a failure. For me that day, success was just standing up there. Success doesn't mean good. You can define the, what success means. And for me, success was just going, standing up, saying some words, sitting down. And so I considered it a success every single time. And that's what they told you there as well. Success is just going there and getting up. Don't worry about the result. The result will take care of itself. And that, that really changed it for me. And that developed the travel style. So it's what other things can I do that I think I'm bad at, that I'm scared of, that I think isn't me? Like, oh, that's not me. I don't do that. What other things in my life can I do that I label that way? And what other massive benefits can I see from there? And so that, that's been my journey so far. You're doing these things that are deeply uncomfortable. Um, again, not, public speaking isn't dangerous. Claustrophobia isn't dangerous. But there is a massive benefit of tackling these things in your life. At one point in my life, I went broke. Like we talked about um, the benefits of being able to think about what's the worst case scenario. But like during that Toronto experience with the apartment, I went broke. And once you go broke once, you kind of get like PTSD and don't want to go broke again. And so ever since then, I was like always afraid to go broke. And I was like times where I'd be af afraid to check my bank account. I was scared, you know, it's just because I had that one point where I went broke. And then so about a year and a half ago, I 
went back and I learned all about money. So I listened to audiobooks like Unshakable by Tony Robbins, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I spent like weeks to understand money, how money works, how the stock market works, how to save money, how to invest money, all of these things. And then my PTSD for money loss went away because I, I learned about it. I understood it. I took time to understand how it works. And that's just exactly the same thing as public speaking, exactly the same thing as talking to girls, exactly the same thing as whatever your fear is. If you just go, it could be swimming. You go, you learn how it works from an expert. You have it all broken down. You put the time in, you get comfortable with it slowly. And lo and behold, these fears go away and you grow exponentially in those directions. Your life changes forever. There is no reason why a story about you coming on stage and talking to a bunch of random people should inspire me so much. But right now, I feel like facing all of my fears and that's insane, right? Like like writing (laughs) them all down and just using them as as like a compass to like point me towards my next objective. Is that, is that like one of the ways that you sort of like do this? Like you figure out like your biggest fears, like, and then you sort of like rush at it. Yeah, dude, hundred percent. That's my entire life. What I've learned over the past couple of years is it's really hard to help people with that. It's like very much a situation, I think they said in the matrix where uh, Morpheus goes to Neo and he said, I can only show you the door. You have to walk in or something like that. It's very much that. Doing the things that make you uncomfortable and scare you is not something that people wake up doing. Like I said, you have to be at a point where you're willing to change. The pain of staying the same is, is greater than the pain of change. And so I have trouble getting people to make that transition. If they're scared of public speaking, I have a hard time getting people to take the public speaking class because I don't think people believe me. No one knew me before then. This whole thing about celebrities and these famous people, it's like not saying I'm a celebrity, but we only see the after. We don't see the shoveling the shit for 10 years beforehand. And then we just compare ourselves against that, this beautiful butterfly that we don't see the caterpillar. And we assume that that the caterpillar never existed. And if we try now, everyone's going to see our like gross worm form. We're not going to be very good. And therefore we never make it to the butterfly stage at the end, man. But it's all about um, just embracing the worm lifestyle (laughs) as in being bad, being ugly, not caring, you know, squinching your way around in the mud, just getting good at the skill set you need and not caring about what happens. And then eventually you'll metamorphosize into the butterfly. But uh, we don't pay attention to that before. And I think that's what people do with me. They don't actually believe I had a bone shaking phobia of public speaking because how I, of course, it doesn't look that way now. But I, I like to think that I'm, I give people the ideas and tools to when they are ready to make a drastic change, they can. And I've had people message me and they, they have done it. But it is always a difficult place to be. In my life, I've kind of found a way to create these little mini hells in my life through these challenges and trips I do to be able to reform and change myself. But it takes a breaking of habit and a breaking of routine to be able to make that happen. And life will do that to you. If you wait long enough, life will come with a hammer and just smash your routine right down to the ground to shambles. That's the crappy thing about life. But then, like I said, it's it's this opportunistic attitude, this um, I can make this work. Let's find a solution how. It's like a roller coaster. It's like bungee jumping. I'm not sure what uh, you or your listeners have been on before as far as these exhilarating rides you can pay money for. There's a lot of them out there. But it's it's very similar. You do this thing that seems crazy and impossible and scary. And then that feeling after when you come back down to the ground, you feel incredible, energized, inspired, like your best self because you did something that's made you scared, Right. 
there's something in that, this survival through something that's that's could be traumatic or, or, or scary that I think the human spirit just lights up like it's on fire. We always feel our best right after one of those moments, just alive, exclamation mark, underlined, alive. <laughs> and that is the life I want to live, underlined, exclamation mark, alive. And for me, it's doing these things that scare me safely, but still doing them anyway, you know? Sweet, sweet, sweet. Uh, Mike, I think I'm going to have a, a rum and coke, sit on my balcony, get out my journal and uh, <laughs> have a little conversation with m- myself and my fear. Just figure out exactly like the top 10 that I have on my list and just like go and execute one after another. Execute, like, that's right. Do, do, yeah. do. <laughs> all right. All right. Mike, this has been awesome. I think I've never felt this inspired at the end of one hour with any other guest. Obviously, I feel like this is something that along with your public speaking, you've practiced, right? I think you come with this like positive energy. And then you just sort of like push it through through the screen. And you obviously have that kind of experience. Uh, but thank you for it. Uh, thank you for this hour. It's been amazing. And I'm sure that the listeners have gleaned a lot of knowledge just from this last one hour. I love sharing travel stories, but I love talking about fear even more because I just think it's it's the quickest hack in anyone's life to be able to change their lives almost instantly is finally deciding to do that thing you've been putting off for a long time. It's the magic solution to getting unstuck. And I, every opportunity I have to talk about it, I, I take that opportunity.